greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have for them food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. I invite you now to turn with me to the book of John, the first chapter, opening three verses, which is this morning's passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Join me in prayer as we invite up Pastor Paul to bring this morning's word. Father, our hearts are uh, full this morning. We're humbled. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of creation. And thank you for Christ, our Savior. Father, as we seek to understand more deeply, more fully the truth of Christ over these coming weeks, I pray that our hearts would be open this morning, that we wouldn't leave here the same as when we came in. Father, open up our hearts, open up our ears. Pray that you'd be with Pastor Paul as he speaks from your word. God, would you give him boldness and power and strength. We love you. Amen. Wow. Did you not feel like you were moving ahead as we sang some of those songs? Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. You know, you can never be outside of the love of God. There's never any place you can go where his love cannot reach you. There's nothing you can ever do which his love will not cover it over. Your love, O oh Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. I don't know about you, but my faithfulness wavers, both to my friends and to my God. But God's faithfulness knows no limits. As we sing, sang this morning, I was just rejoicing 
in the faithfulness of God to me who had been unfaithful to him this week. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. There is nothing that is greater than the righteousness of God. What a beautiful name. What a wonderful name. What a powerful name. To see how much benefit song is for the soul and for the life of faith. It's great to sing together with the people of God. We come to a new, uh, different series now. Revelation is finished for the most part. And uh, for the next five weeks, we just want to spend our time in um, John chapter 1. It's a great scripture that um, reminds us about who Jesus Christ is. And uh, we're going to break it up into five uh, different uh, messages. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all begin their gospel in history and in time. They begin with the ministry of Christ here on earth. But John takes us back to eternity past. John wants to show us how the purpose of the gospel of God entered into history. The eternal God entered into time and space. And it's critical that we wrap our heads around this and understand this, particularly at this Christmas time, when we spend a lot of time thinking about the baby that was born. John leaves no doubt as to why he wrote his gospel. He declares his purpose at the end of the gospel of John, I think it's in chapter 20, where he writes this, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, the book of John doesn't contain everything that Jesus did or that John witnessed Jesus do. But he says this, he says, but these, the things that he has recorded, are written so that. There's a purpose clause. That's the reason why John wrote his gospel. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is key. John wants us to understand that Jesus is more than a man, that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he writes these things so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then he says, and that, by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus came to give us life, an eternal life. And the reason that Jesus can give us life is because he is the son of God. And that's what John is going to unpack for us in a little bit. The gospel. And we're going to spend a, a fair bit of time, I believe, in the gospel in the new year. But the gospel is an announcement First and foremost, it's an announcement of what God has done. What God has done for mankind. It's summarized in many places. Certainly one of them is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, in Jesus Christ, the glory and the grace and the mercy of God is uniquely and perfectly disclosed to us. They re he reveals to us God. But the astonishing thing is that we human beings look at Jesus and we outright reject him. And we deny that he is God. And he, we deny that he can do anything necessary for us. And so these verses that we're going to look at are extraordinarily important. They're important because they tell us and they answer the question actually, who is Jesus? Who is this baby that was born thousands of years ago to Joseph and Mary? It is an important question to ask, and it's important that we answer it through Scripture. 
There's a word that John uses, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That word is important that we understand it. I'm going to give it away right off the top so there's no doubt about that. Who is the word speaking about? Well, John removes any doubt from that in verse 14 where he says, And the word became flesh. That is, Jesus Christ took on human flesh, and he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full and full of grace and truth. In other words, the word, the word that was in the beginning, the word that was with God, and the word that was God is none other than Jesus Christ. And so we have to settle that in our heads as we enter into this story. And so Christmas, it's this wonderful retelling of the birth of Jesus Christ. But it's also the story of how the eternal God, the pre-existent Son of God, left eternity and entered into time and space. The birth of Jesus was not the beginning of Jesus. The birth of Jesus was the beginning of his entering into human history, but he was always the pre-existent Son of God. That is the message of John. And so the first couple of verses reveal to us then something of the glory of Christ as God. John begins by simply saying, in the beginning was the Word. It's no accident that I've asked that those who read Scripture today read Genesis 1. It is, it's the same beginning, the same words that John uses to introduce us to Christ. And there are some incredible comparisons between Genesis 1 and John chapter 1, which I encourage you to look through a little bit. But the point of comparison that John is wanting us to understand is that before there was anything, Christ was. Mark begins his gospel by saying this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And I wonder if what John is trying to do is he's saying, listen, Mark told you about the, G the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. I want to tell you about Jesus before there was a beginning. In the beginning was the Word. John wants to show us that we can trace the starting point of the gospel, the announcement of God, which is the good news to sinful lost man, the, that the beginning of the gospel be goes, goes back before even the universe existed. In other words, Jesus existed before creation. In the beginning was the Word. There was never a time when Jesus was not. There was never a time which we can say Jesus was created. He always was. Just as God was in the beginning, so also was Christ in the beginning. This first phrase is an unmistakable declaration that Jesus Christ was pre-existent before this world was ever, ever created. He's like Melchizedek, whom the writer of Hebrews describes as the one who is like the Son of God. He had without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And so when we think about Christ, and as we reflect on it through these next number of weeks, we need to remember that the infant that we look at and that we see in the manger, he existed before he was physically born. Secondly, he says the word was with God. That means he enjoyed a personal relationship with God. With indicates equality and distinction. It's, the, the word was distinct from God, but the word was equal with God. The word was in a relationship with God. The word was with God. As John is a, or Jesus is approaching his death, John records a prayer of Jesus. And Jesus says to this, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. 
In other words, Christ is acknowledging and Christ is declaring and Christ is reminding us through his prayer that he existed in an eternal relationship with God before this world ever existed. He was independent of God, but he was in fellowship with God. One of the, one of the, the difficult truths of Christianity, difficult because it's hard for us to wrap our heads around it, not because it's not true, is that there are not two gods, there is only one God. There is only one God, but here John is describing for us and saying that that one God exists in at least two different persons, and we know that there's three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Word was with God. The Word was equal to God. There are two persons, the Word and God, and yet they are both God. Two persons, one God. How do we wrap our heads around that? I was thinking about that, and I, I had a talk with my wife this past week about it, just saying, this is what I think I'm going to say, but I don't know if it makes sense. And she says, well, say it. She didn't say it made sense or not. She just said, say it. But you know how the Bible speaks about marriage, don't you? And I wonder if this is the way that we can at least begin to wrap our heads around and begin thinking about this, one of the ways that we can think about it. God intended marriage, the union of one man and one woman. God intended that through marriage, a man and a woman be united in such a way that they can de be declared one flesh. Now that is true. Those of us who are married, we are one flesh with our spouse. But yet we're two individual people. Two people, one flesh. It's a mystery. And the longer, I was talking to somebody this morning who's been married for 62 years, and the longer you are married, the longer you understand, the, the more you understand the unity that you have together, and yet you still remain two distinct people. And maybe that is a way for us to begin to wrap our heads around how God can be one God and yet exist as three persons, one essence, three persons. In the beginning was the Word, and the wood, Word was with God. That infant, that baby that we are reminded of at Christmas, the one who was physically born, eternally existed in community with God. And then the final thing that John says, and the word was God. Uh, there's no doubt there what he's saying. There's no way for us to work around that. John wanted us to be upfront. He wanted it to be cleared up here that Jesus Christ is God. The text is unambiguous. There's no way around this. And much of John's gospel will be the revelation of this truth. How that terms that are applied to Jesus are terms that were also applied to God. Names that are applied to Jesus in the New Testament are names that were applied to God in the Old Testament. Attributes that were applied to God in the Old Testament are attributes that are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. That Jesus is God. The Bible's evidence is overwhelming that the child in the manger is God. And so John begins his gospel by declaring to us the glory of Christ, the eternally existent Son of God who has always been in relationship with God. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that we wrap our heads around this and understand this? I've just got three things really quickly. Um, there, there's lots more, but the first is simply this, that it matters because only God can fully reveal God to us. Many ways, there are many ways that God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to us in creation. I had uh, the opportunity to, to be out in creation yesterday and up high in the mountains with the snow coming down. And I was just lost for about a half hour in wonder. 
As I, as I saw the snow falling, as the snow crunched under my feet, as it was hanging so beautifully off the evergreen trees, and I could see the mountains, and it was just stunning, and I was just talking with God and wondering about his imagination and his power, and how can he turn rain into snow, and how can he make it fall in such a way that it's so beautiful, and how do these trees grow and stand against the wind, and it was just, uh, how were the rocks made, and which came first, the rocks or the earth, and I was just full of the glory and the beauty of God. God is revealed in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. But God is also revealed to us in his word. We have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seats and you can take that home. And you can, you can see in that word as you read it, you can know that God is revealing himself to you. He's, he's telling you about himself, what he's like, what his characteristics are, what his attributes are, what makes him happy, what makes him sad, what makes him laugh, what grieves him. That's all contained in the Bible and you can find it from Genesis to Revelation. God has revealed himself in the word. But God has finally and fully revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And John wants us to read the whole of the gospel through that lens. That when Jesus speaks, God speaks. When Jesus acts, God acts. And so when you read the gospels and you hear Jesus speaking, what you're actually hearing is God speaking. Because Jesus says, I only speak what the, God, what the Father told me to speak. I only have come to do what the Father has told me to do. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to get a glimpse or a picture of God, read the Gospel of John, and every time you hear Jesus say something, note it and say, that's what God says. Every time Jesus responds to a situation, that's how God responds to a situation. Every time Jesus has an emotion or a feeling or a reaction to a situation, that's how God reacts to that situation. And you will come at the end of that with a fuller picture of what God is like. Secondly, why does it matter that we understand that Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God? Because your and my salvation hinges, is tied to the reality that Jesus Christ is God. If he was merely a man, then Jesus could only have saved himself. His, his good life and his perfect righteousness would have only been sufficient to save himself. He couldn't have taken that righteousness and applied it to anybody else because it only would have been his human righteousness. But because he is also God, he can take that righteousness that he's achieved in his humanity and he can apply, he can apply it to all humanity. And his righteousness then can be placed on all who will put their faith and trust in him. And not only that, he can make an eternal covenant because his righteousness would have only been good for him. But because he is God, his righteousness exists eternally for all who put their faith and trust in him. And so it matters that he is God for our salvation. Only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty of all the sins of all those who would ever trust in him. And only someone who was fully man could become a substitute for those who had disobeyed and walked away from God. And finally, why does it matter? Well, because salvation is from the Lord. The whole message of Scripture is designed to show us that no human being, no creature, could ever save himself, let alone anybody else. Only God can save. When we deny the pre-existent deity of Christ, we gut salvation. And if that's not true, if Christ is not the pre-existent pre eternal Son of God who saves us, 
then how will you make yourself make your way back to God? How will you enter back into a relationship God? What is the path that you will take to get back into a right relationship of God? You have to answer that question if you deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Secondly, we see the glory of Christ through creation. I wish we could read Genesis 1 every single Sunday. I don't know about you, but the onslaught of those who undermine the teaching of Scripture about creation is unrelenting. The testimony of Scripture is unequivocal. God created this world. All things were made by him, and what was made was in no way made without him. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Many times over in the Old Testament, we find that the creation is attributed to God. The creation of the heavens and the earth, the whole universe, is attributed to God. Yet in the New Testament, this function is attributed to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the divine agent through whom God created the world. In other words, it, it again reminds us of his deity. God created the world. God created the world through Christ. Christ is God. What John wants us to understand and what the Bible teaches is that every single thing in this universe owes its existence to the word. It is impossible to miss the scope of this phrase, all things were made through him. There is nothing in this world, anywhere in this universe, that has an independent existence apart from Christ Jesus. All things were made through him. And as God, John goes on, he says, Christ is the mediator of creation in the sense that, that through the Father he created all things through him. Without him was not anything that was made. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Loved ones, not only the things that we see have been created by God, but the things that we cannot see have been created by God. The whole invisible world that we have been speaking about in the book of Revelation for these past number of months, the, the demonic forces, they, they are not independent of God. They do not exist apart from God. They are not self-created. They too have been created by God and they, their existence is maintained by God. Hebrews, which we already heard earlier, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed an heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the power of his word. We cannot avoid the intent of this passage. It is clear about the origins of the universe. The world was created by God and through God, and everything that has been made has been made through Christ Jesus. Without his intervention or without his word, nothing would be created, and without the sustaining power of his word, this universe would collapse in on itself in a nanosecond. Don't buy into the lie of deism, which tells us that God created the world and then stepped away from it and is just letting it unwind without any intervention at all. Christ Christmas is, is, the, is the masterpiece 
destruction of the view of deism. Because Christmas tells us that God entered into his creation. Don't buy into the lie of evolution. It says that this world has come into being without God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Not only the spoken word of God, but by the word of God who was Christ Jesus. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. There is incredible evidence everywhere you turn of God's hand in creation. It doesn't mean we know all the answers to how, but there is enough evidence that we can have a reasonable faith that God spoke and this world came into existence. Stop and think this through with me for a moment, this fact, this, this issue alone. God stepped into his creation. Doesn't that blow you away? It, it does me for a number of reasons. One, the incredible humility that Jesus, the one who made this world and everything in it, voluntarily submitted himself to the rules by which this world is sustained. Even the rule of gravity, which keeps us, our feet on the ground, which is an unbreakable law, which keeps the planets and the moons in their orbits. The one who created all of that voluntarily submitted himself to the laws that he created. He voluntarily submitted himself to death and allowing death to invade his body. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, born in uh, the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Is that not extraordinary humility? That the creator subjected himself to creation? What about vulnerability? What about coming to live amongst those whom you created, who hurled abuses at you, who mocked you, who denied your person, and who eventually would kill you? What incredible vulnerability that the creator of this world submitted himself to the creatures of this world. What trust? Jesus Christ lived every second of his day in full and total dependence and trust upon his Father. There was not a moment which he wavered in God's care, in God's love, in God's plan for his life. Not a second did he waver. What incredible trust to walk through the same world that you and I do and never blinking from his confidence and his trust in God. What love that Jesus Christ would do all of that in order that we might find our way back to God. It's incredible to me that God would step into his own creation, the glory of Christ in creation. I want to spend just a couple more moments here to open this up for us. We live in a world that is absolutely hostile to this truth hostile to the truth that God created this world. I went back and I was looking in my files um, an article that was in the New York Times that had a report on a forum that was held by the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. 
An event took place down in Los Angeles, I believe, known as Beyond Belief, Science, Religion, Reason, and Survival. The whole event was an outright attack on religion. Carolyn Porso, a senior researcher at the Space Science Institute in Boulder, Colorado, called half in half jest for the establishment of an alternative church. She wasn't entirely kidding. She says, we should let the success of our religious formula or of the religious formula guide us. Let's teach our children from a very young age about the story of the universe and its incredible richness and beauty. It is already so much more glorious and awesome and even comforting than anything offered by scripture or God concept that I know. Another, Dr. Wenberg, who wrote at the end of his book on cosmology, the first three minutes, wrote that the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless. And he went a step further and he says, anything that we scientists can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done. Anything that we can do to weaken the hold of religion should be done. And may in the end, it be our greatest contribution to civilization. Dr. Dawkins, frustrated at this conference with any attempt to suggest that religion and science could coexist, said, I'm utterly fed up with the respect that we, all of us, including the secular among us, are brainwashed into bestowing on religion. He said, children are systematically taught that there is a higher kind of knowledge which comes from faith, which comes from revelation, which comes from scripture, which comes from tradition. And that is the equal, if not superior, of knowledge that comes from real evidence. You need to know if you bring your kids to this church, they will learn about a God who created the heavens and the earth. If you bring your young people to this church, they will hear about a God who created the heavens and the earth. And that is real knowledge from the God who made the heavens and the earth. And it is not contradictory to real science either. So what's at stake if we give up creation? The most obvious one is our confidence in scripture. You see, there is an issue of faith and belief in the inspiration and authority of Scripture. If, if one decides not to accept the biblical account of creation, then where do you start believing the Bible? Do you start in, in Genesis chapter 4? Do you start in Exodus chapter 1? Do you start in Matthew? Do you start in Revelation? What part of the Scripture then can you decide is not right and you decide is right? If you give up a confidence in the biblical testimony of how this world came in existence because you believe something else, then you have just become an authority over Scripture. Either Scripture is true or it is not. And if you don't believe Scripture is true, then what alternative account for creation will you then accept? You can't have it both ways. Secondly, if you give up a biblical view of creation, then how will you ever handle unjust suffering that you are sure to experience in this world? One of the gospel writers said, therefore those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is what Christ did. 
You see, when we face unjust suffering, when we suffer because we've done what is right, when we suffer because we've obeyed the laws of the land, when we suffer because we've walked with God, how do we ever make sense of that other than to cast ourselves at the feet of the faithful creator and said, God, you made all this world. You will bring it all to a conclusion. I entrust myself to you, even though it's awful right now. If you throw out God as a creator, then what comfort will you ever find when you face unjust suffering in a world that he hasn't created? Our pursuit of the meaning in life. If the world in which we live just happened to come into existence and then will one day deteriorate into non-existence, then what gives any meaning or purpose to your life? If matter is all that there is, and, 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 and then where do you get any real meaning in your life? If life is just a brief spark in the infinite blackness, and when you wink out, that's it, you're gone, then ultimately human, human species will go the way of every other species, and when you're gone, life on earth will simply roll on without us. One day the sun will expand and it will swallow the earth, our solar system will become just a cold, dead ember. One day, too, the universe itself will end. One day, dark and cold and empty, there is no escape, there is no meaning, there is no hope. A world without God does not really satisfy the longing of our hearts. Bertrand Russell famously said that we must bravely live in the face of this meaninglessness and build our lives upon the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Do we really believe that it, that it is the accidents of history, not the intentions of a designer, that are the source of our meaning in life? If there is no designer, no God in your understanding of origin, then where will you find meaning? in life. That's because meaning is derived. It's not inherent in things. So where is meaning derived in naturalism or atheism or evolution? It's derived from accidents. There's no reason that I'm here other than that I'm an accident. I could have, I could have just as equally been a tree or a squid or an ant as I am a human being. You can't find meaning in an accident. It is true what one writer said, life without God is ultimately life without any point of reference for meaning other than what one gives it at the time. If life is random, then the inescapable consequence, first and foremost, is that there can be no ultimate meaning and purpose to existence. As individuals and collectively the cultures, we human beings long for meaning. But if life is random, we have climbed to the top of the evolutionary ladder only to find nothing at the top. Fourthly, if we give up on a biblical view of creation, then we have to give up on our confidence of spiritual recreation. If material creation is not in the hands of Christ, then why would we believe that new creation is in the hands of Christ? If our, our, our belief then in, of this has a bearing on our attitude that in Christ we are new creatures, that in Christ by a spoken word he renews us or he makes us new or he brings us back to life. Isn't it what Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is gone. Or the, the, the old is gone, the new has come. If God did not create the first creation, the material creation, how can we ever have confidence that he can create me spiritually? can't have it both ways. Got to work this through logically. And, and, and fifthly, we've just been through the book of Revelation. If God did not create the first heaven and the earth, then who's going to create the new heavens and the new earths? 
You can't have it both ways. So our, our confidence that one day at the end of this world, when Christ comes back, he's going to destroy this present world and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. If he didn't do it the first time, how can we ever have confidence he's going to do it a second time? Finally, a very practical <coughs> application of this. If we don't have confidence that God created this world, then how can we have any confidence that God can answer my prayers? We pray to one through one who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in us. It has become a part of my regular prayer life now, Acts chapter 4, verse 25, when I think it was Peter was in jail and they were praying and they began their prayer this way, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and everything that is in them, the earth and everything that is in it, the seas and everything that is in it. Sovereign Lord, because you are that powerful, because you have done that, you are able to deliver our brother from prison. Loved ones, that is my confidence in prayer, is that God can do whatever God wants to do because he is that powerful and he is that great. And if he has made this heavens and this earth, certainly he can get me a job. See, it matters a great deal that we get it right about Christ, the pre-existent Son of God, through whom all things were made. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God, and therefore we worship him. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the creator, and therefore he is worthy of our trust. This is the Jesus that was born to Joseph and Mary. And it is thus Jesus who saves us and gives us everlasting life. And he came into this world at just the right time according to God's perfect plan. For in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. This is the gospel. This is why God sent Jesus into the world, to redeem. That means to buy back, to purchase back, to free Free from what? Free from the consequences of sin. Free from the punishment that is due our sin. Free from our disobedience and all the consequences that come with our disobedience to God. He came to redeem us from all of that and to bring us back into a relationship with the Father so that we might receive adoption as sons.